X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, July 21st. A good day to subscribe and share with friends. Today, back in the day, July 21st, 1656, Elizabeth Key won her freedom in early colonial Virginia. Elizabeth Key became the first woman of African descent in North America to sue for her freedom and win. And here in Oregon today, back in the day, July 21st, 1905, Oregon had its last public hanging. The story may be a bit disturbing. You can click ahead about two and a half minutes and skip it if you want. Back in 1904, in the state of Oregon versus Norman Williams, an Oregon jury made legal history by convicting a man of murder without having a body as evidence. In a legal system based on precedent, the case continues to be cited in murder cases to this day. Daniel Norman Williams was born in Ontario on January 17, 1857. He served three years in Nebraska Penitentiary for assaulting and nearly killing his sister-in-law. After being released from prison, he met and married Alma Nesbitt, and they homesteaded next to each other outside Hood River. Later, her mother, Louisa Nesbitt, joined them. On March 8, 1900, the trio boarded a Portland train for Hood River. When they arrived that evening, Williams rented a wagon, and they headed to their homestead. That was the last time either woman was seen alive. In early 1904, George Nesbitt arrived in Oregon to investigate the disappearance of his mother and his sister. While digging around on Williams' property, he discovered bloody gunny sacks, chunks of gray hair, and a piece of scalp. The Wasco County Grand Jury issued an indictment for first-degree murder against Williams. After his arrest, it turned out he was still married to a wife in Nebraska, and two of his six wives had died of poisoning. At the trial, his defense attorney argued there could be no murder without a body. The prosecutor, however, had a surprise witness, Dr. L. Victoria Hampton, a young Portland chemist. She proved that the hair attached to the scalp was human and testified it belonged to Alma Nesbitt. Using the new serum test discovered in Germany, Dr. Hampton established the blood in the gunny sacks was from a human being, not an animal. After the guilty verdict was appealed and upheld, the Oregon Supreme Court said this, Whereas here, the circumstances point with one accord to the death of a person alleged to have been murdered, the finding of fragments of a human body which are identified as part of the death of the alleged victim will be sufficient, if believed by the jury, to establish the fact of death when this is the best evidence that can be obtained under the circumstances. The case is still cited today. And on July 21, 1905, Daniel Norman Williams was the 66th and last person publicly hanged in Oregon. 1997, by the way, was the last Oregonian to suffer the death penalty of any sort since John Kitzhaber announced his moratorium and Kate Brown has continued it. I want to say a big thanks to the Oregon Encyclopedia where you can learn all kinds of stuff. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. Dr. Holly Hinson is back with answers to your COVID-19 questions and an interview with Pat Daniels from Constructing Hope where we talk about how they work to help the formerly incarcerated find jobs in the trades. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. On Monday, Ted Wheeler has announced he won't give oversight of the police bureau to Joanne Hardesty, as she requested. And prior to that, Portland Fire and Rescue, overseen by Hardesty, announced that local and federal police aren't allowed to use the city fire stations. During more than 50 consecutive nights of demonstrations against police brutality and racism, the police bureau's rapid response team, tasked with responding to large protests, would sometimes wait in the fire station parking lots until called upon. But on Sunday, Fire Chief Sarah Boone sent out a memo that Portland police will no longer be able to use any of the 31 fire stations of the city as a staging ground for any tactical operations until further notice. 
Hardesty, of course, released a critique of the police bureau and the mayor who oversees the force. She said she believed Wheeler was not in command of the city's police. She also said it was clear police were collaborating with federal officers, which she called an occupying force. And the fire bureau emphasized on Sunday that federal law enforcement, and I'm quoting, were not and will not ever be allowed to use fire stations for their operations. Your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 277 new COVID-19 cases and two more deaths. That brings the state's total case number to 14,847 confirmed cases and 262 related deaths. While Monday's numbers were not as dire as recent record-setting days, the state's public health agency warned of related concerning situations. Health officials warned that testing wait times in Oregon could be affected by growing national demand for testing supplies as COVID-19 cases increase across the country. Of the state's almost 15,000 total cases, 42% of those were reported in July. That means by the end of this month, about half of all of the cases in Oregon are going to happen this month. The number of new cases in each of the last two weeks surpassed the total number of cases in all of May. Clackamas County reported 11 new cases on Monday. They're trying to de-tether from Multnomah and Washington counties. And went back and tracked COVID19.healthdata.org. Here is breaking from us, by the way. I haven't seen this in any other news organization in our town. Remember how the projected deaths in Oregon were about 170 or so, and then they crept past 200? Well, now the projected death count by November is 605. According to the weekly data reports, group housing settings, such as senior living situations, are involved in more than half of the deaths due to coronavirus. The Oregon Health Authority is tracking active outbreaks in at least 30 of what the state calls congregate care facilities, and outbreaks in another 38 of these locations have been resolved. State's also tracking about 60 active workplace outbreaks. The prisons count for 323 diagnoses, and the biggest non-prison active workplace outbreaks are at Pacific Seafood in Newport, associated with 181 cases. We've talked about them. Lamb Weston in Hermiston, associated with 142 cases, and Bob's Red Mill in Milwaukee at 61 cases. According to the latest available data, Washington has passed 46,000 confirmed cases and reached 1,444 known deaths. According to recent city expense report data, Portland has spent about $8 million, most of that for the police bureau, during the protests. It's about $5 million in police overtime, plus $2 million in other police personnel costs. The expense data was released to the Oregonian on Friday. By the way, sometimes that data is released so the conversation becomes about the cost of the protest rather than what the protests are about. Just a heads up. The Fire Bureau has spent a little over $350,000 in overtime, a little bit in tools and other labor costs. And meanwhile, a crowd of mothers gathered at the vanguard of the protests Saturday and Sunday nights, and County Commissioner Sharon Myron was tear-gassed by federal officers. As a physician, she was stunned to see it tossed out by federal officers so frequently, especially during a pandemic, and here is her quote, Last night, I was tear-gassed by a federal occupying force I saw, all caps, throw canisters of poison, without warning, into a nonviolent crowd, including elders, the vulnerable. We can't wait for November to drive secret police from PDX. Democracy is slipping away in front of our tear gas eyes. Oregon members of Congress are trying to block the activities of the United States government law enforcement agencies at the local level. Oregon Senators Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden, plus Representatives Earl Blumenauer and Suzanne Bonamici, are going to institute the, here's the name of it, Preventing Authoritarian Policing Tactics on America's Streets Act. I think that's PAPTASA. The bill, and I'm quoting, would block the Trump administration from deploying federal forces as a shadowy paramilitary against Americans. 
The act was also introduced as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, which the Senate is currently debating. According to the authors, the bill would require individual and agency identification on uniforms and officers, prevent unmarked vehicles from being used in arrests, limit federal agents' crowd control activities to federal property and its immediate vicinity unless their presence is specifically requested by both the mayor and the governor, require disclosure within 24 hours of deployment specifying the number of personnel and purposes of deployment, and would make arrests in violation of these rules unlawful. Getting this stuff into a Senate bill is going to be hard to do past Mitch McConnell. However, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this weekend joined Blumenauer in criticizing the federal deployments. And Oregon lawmakers have been reaching out to Republicans, hoping to gain their support since many conservatives have long argued in favor of local control over federal interference. And yesterday on Monday, Trump said he might send federal agents to other cities. He specifically cited Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Baltimore, and Oakland. The Oregon Health Department is expecting a shipment on Monday, 3,000 face masks and roughly 300 face shields. And then for the first time, the department will acquire masks for workers who process unemployment claims. 485 people work in the new Wilsonville Contact Center. At least two of them have tested positive. The department said five confirmed cases in a building will trigger an office shutdown for deep cleaning. That's what happened to the now shuttered employment office in Gresham. There, seven staff were confirmed to have COVID-19 as of Friday. But the Wilsonville Center is much larger. If that gets shut down, it'll go right to the core of the effort to try to meet the demand of the new unemployment claims. Until now, masks have been optional. The department is piloting a long-requested telework experiment accelerated by the Gresham outbreak. That's allowing Gresham workers in quarantine to process pandemic unemployment assistance claims, those are the PUA claims, from home for the first time. If that pilot's successful, they hope to expand it. A claim specialist in Wilsonville was far more blunt about the risk of the virus at work. Their quote, People aren't going to get paid their money if there are no humans to press the buttons. And some good news if you like this sort of thing. In-N-Out Burger is coming closer to Portland. The mayor of Tualatin has said the fast food chain is in the beginning phases of a permitting process. They're going to move to a restaurant space vacated in early May by a village inn. That's just off I-5 across from Bridgeport Village. There's been a frenzy ever since In-N-Out opened up outside the Salem area. Seven months later, the Kaiser restaurant still has congestion around the block. By the way, did you know the biggest advantage of national chains is the shared marketing cost? They get some advantage from bulk purchasing and locked-in efficiency systems, but the big benefit they get is from shared marketing. This, by the way, is the local. We can help one another spread the word. And even better news, Soul Bowl is a food cart on 5800 MLK. Mildred Sweet Treats is at 236 North Killingsworth. Jada Soulful Eats is at 7339 North MLK. Lily on the Go is at 2280 Northwest Burnside in Gresham. That and other black-owned businesses are in the guide getting compiled by the numbers and x-ray. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Dr. Holly Henson is back with answers to listener questions about COVID-19. Here are Dr. Holly Henson and Jefferson Smith. Dr. Holly Henson has a love of radio and of medicine. She was a DJ and music director at a college radio station, is now an ICU doc and intensivist at OHSU, it says here, and I hope I get that right. It is a wonderful combination to come here to talk to radio listeners. She is speaking for herself, not for her institution. We are so glad that she is here to speak for herself. Doctor, good morning. Hey, Jefferson. How are you? I am holding up, is what I would say. I put the same question to you. How are you holding up and any silver linings? Ooh, you know, it's a complex time and really challenging on a lot of fronts, I think, for all of us. And I think the realization has dawned on many of us, myself included, that this is uh, the COVID crisis is something we're going to be living with for some time and how to coexist with this and 
find joy as well as keeping ourselves safe and somehow put an outlet for all the worries that we have right um is uh, is a challenge but uh like you holding up holding you know keeping it together we got i got a note about just yesterday i think in anticipation of this conversation about stress that one of our listeners described this as wartime and they didn't mean in terms of expenditure of money but they meant in terms of the leaked stress out that ends up showing up in so many ways uh, beyond something that seems directly related to COVID-19 in terms of just people's level of happiness people's ability to coexist with their spouse or their coworkers, just the high levels of stress what do you advise people to do to address stress I know you're not a psychotherapist but you might have thoughts Sure. So I think the first thing is is to acknowledge that this is an incredibly different time than any of us, I think, alive today have ever lived in or through. And um, there's really, I'm hard-pressed to come up with any aspect that this situation has not altered in some way. I mean, sometimes for the positive, and I can uh, cite a few examples, but for the most part, not, not good, in not good ways. And so I think just recognizing that this is incredibly challenging and to give yourself space to, to, to realize that and to know that and to not expect high levels of productivity because we are all, quote unquote, working from home and have so much extra time. That's just not a reality for most folks. In fact, many folks can't even work from home because they have direct service industry jobs, which, um, you know, are not, not there uh, at present. So I think that's a number one. And I think number two is to try to get the services that you need and um and and that's a huge other challenge but for example uh there are many folks that are delaying medical care um for you know new and acute issues because they're concerned about maybe contacting you know the hospital or the medical apparatus because of fears of maybe even contracting covid by just trying to get help for you know acute medical issues so i just want to caution everyone that if you're having a new acute medical issue please 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 do not delay treatment um something that we've observed uh, a lot is uh, a drop in the number of folks presenting with acute conditions like stroke for example or heart attack and that worries us because i don't think that people are not having heart attacks and people are not having strokes i think folks are just waiting to 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 present to the hospital because of concerns uh, about what that looks like and um, so folks are kind of delaying necessary care and, and that concerns me a lot so I think uh, that's I'm not answering necessarily your question but I do want to get that message out there to folks how long here's a question from Marcy a listener thank you Marcy how long is an asymptomatic carrier contagious can it be longer than someone who gets sick that's a great question, and I don't think we have a solid answer to it. I know that um, certainly can be uh, a minimum of 7 to 14 days, but potentially longer. And it's unclear, um, again, uh, as we're sort of realizing that different folks have different sort of uh, viral loads, if you will, so n- number of sort of copies of virus and then concentration of those uh, viral copies in their for example, in their um, respiratory, you know, sort of droplets. And so that varies from person to person. And um, and it's unclear if, because you're asymptomatic, that doesn't necessarily imply that you have a lower sort of viral load or, or lower ability to, to sort of uh, produce or spread that. So um, so it's, it's, it's unclear. And until we have really good, reliable antibody testing and, and a better knowledge of, 
sort of when someone converts to a uh, sort of a convalescent state, I don't think we're going to know the answer to how long a person is potentially infectious. What's the jury say now on masks? The first time you and I talked about masks, the jury was out and there was some discussion. In fact, the federal government was saying a different thing about masks. What is now our best understanding? And is there a consensus at this point? Yeah, definitely. So doesn't it seem like a, another world ago when we were speaking about this? I, I right? think it was only like two months ago, but it seems to be uh, several decades ago yeah. right, in, uh, in COVID time. But yeah, the, 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 the advice has changed dramatically, right? Um, and some of that was based on the, the worry that supplies were going to be extremely limited to, to folks in the healthcare industry and they would not be able to have access to surgical masks, which would be, you know, complete catastrophe. Um, and as we've seen, PPE shortages has been uh, incredibly difficult. But at this point, it's really clear that everyone should be masking and as much and as often as you possibly can and um and any situation in which you're going to to get within six feet of another person indoors or outdoors and um and so i think that we uh understand that certainly if if both let's just say two people are in a uh in in sort of proximity with one another if both are masked the um, ability for the virus to transmit from person to person if, if indeed uh one of those per- persons does have covid then um, it's extremely unlikely, right? Because you have two sort of um, screens, if you will, uh, blocking viral particles. Not completely impossible, but pretty darn unlikely. And, um, and so at this point, um, aggressive masking is really the way to go. And, uh, and so I'd strongly encourage folks to, to, to do it as much as possible. And it's, um, it can be challenging. For example, I think we've spoken about this last time. I, I like to run outside. That really is good for my mental health. And I, I suspect many other people have similar practices. And it's, uh, it's an adjustment to try to think about uh, wearing a mask uh, when you're trying to exercise outdoors, especially when it's really hot. But if you're you know, going out to the park and you know the other folks are going to be around, I'm really trying to to at least have a mask on you, and certainly if you're going to get in proximity with folks, to to really try to wear those. It's really important. I think that the intrepid producer, Julie Oppenheimer, is going to hop on the mic and ask a question. If Julia, good morning. Good morning. Um, Thank you for doing this, Dr. Hinson. My question is about surfaces. Um, I know in the beginning there was a lot of talk about wiping everything down, um, hand sanitizing constantly. I'm sure that's still a great idea to wash your hands and hand sanitize. But what do we do? We know more about how it transmits on surfaces, and is it safe to pick up your Amazon package outside? Right. So the and again, the situation's evolving, and so I feel like very much like two months ago when we were talking about masking and the uh, the recommendations were quite a bit different. Let me just say this caveat that that this is a fast moving landscape, right? Because research is so active. It seems like that virus, this particular virus is not staying on surfaces for an extended period of time, particularly those in which, um, you know, for example, like plastic, metal, et cetera, um, the virus is not necessarily going to live on a surface like that for an extended period of time. So, you know, and again, a little common sense here. So if someone directly sneezes on something, you know, and you pick it up five minutes later, that could be problematic. But in general, um, certainly if there's a period of time, uh, the virus is not going to not going to uh, survive for a, a lengthy period of time on a surface without a 
without a host. And so I think, again, this is no substitute for uh, washing your hands very frequently. Please, please, please continue to mask, continue to wash your hands. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for avoiding those important steps. But I think the idea of having to Clorox wipe your uh, mail, you know, sort of before you open it is is not uh, a necessary step. I know a lot of folks were sort of sanitizing groceries in this, that, and the other, and I, I think that's that's probably um, not necessary. But if it gives you peace of mind, heck, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Dr. Holly Hinson, thank you so very much for spending the time with us today and for doing that before. And I'd like to think we'd never have to do it again, but I would enjoy talking to you, and I suspect we might have to do it again. True enough. Well, I appreciate the time today, and I'd uh, love to come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks, Doc. Constructing Hope is an organization focused on building skills for individuals towards a career in the construction industry. The organization helps people of color, unemployed people, the formerly incarcerated and low-income individuals re-enter the workforce and attain middle-class wages. The organization supports those with the highest unemployment rates, fewest career options, and weakest safety net, engages young people to learn that they have the opportunities, abilities, and confidence for career and life success, and addresses diversity in the workforce to produce systemic change. Here are Executive Director Pat Daniels and Jefferson Smith with more on the work of Constructing Hope. Pat Daniels is with us right now. Good morning. Good morning, Jefferson. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for being here and thanks for your work. If you were going to describe in just a few sentences or as many sentences as you'd like, how would you describe Constructing Hope? Well, I would describe Constructing Hope as a free training program. And it is a training program that basically does four things. Well, six things. Um, we're teaching the work ethics. So we teach about hard skills and soft skills. We're teaching um, in construction, it's important to be assertive and have confidence uh, in order to move forward. Uh, you talked about the, the culture of the industry. So we talk to you about mental toughness and teach you about that culture. We talk to you about life outside of work and choices. But basically what we do is we, um, in this training, we're teaching skills to be successful and we provide certifications along with case management and job development with job developers so that when you complete the program, you're actually going to have career placement and we work on retention to help our graduates move to leadership positions. Describe the paradigmatic participant in the Constructing Hope programs. Who are you providing services for? The program started out targeting 100% formerly incarcerated back in 1995. When we moved to our current location at 405 Northeast Church Street, having a storefront, we now have other people in our program. So about 60 to 70% maintained um, formerly incarcerated. Other people are low income. So everyone that attends our program is 100% low income. And is that because when you started the storefront, you'd get walk-ins, and so it wasn't just your targeting of programs and working with uh, with organizations and working with maybe the uh, the prison department itself, but people would just drop by? Yeah, it was having the storefront. People stopped by, but we also started a summer youth program. So we start going into schools, partnering with schools, partnering with other community organizations to get people interested. The number one thing was most people that were not aware of the career opportunities within construction. We took it out of the high schools quite some time ago 
And so with that, there was a huge gap where everybody was really pushing college, not really understanding that there's a, a, a great opportunity in the construction industry that does not require you to pay back a student loan. So with that combination of starting our summer youth camp, so we address kids every five weeks in the summer. We take kids any from age 16 to 19 to come into our summer camp. We introduce them to as many trades as we can so that when they go back to high school, they can make that decision about college, take the, the necessary math courses so that they can actually apply directly to the construction trades when they graduate or come through Constructing Hope where we provide additional certification. So going through our program, our graduates leave with certifications in safety, so they have a 40-hour HAZWOPER, first aid CPR. They've been introduced to fall protection, how to work in confined spaces. There's many advantages that we give them in going through this. And a lot of times when they go through, and if you've never been introduced, you don't really know what trade you really like to do. So this gives them an opportunity to do a variety of things choose something and get started down that pathway when you go to the summer camp you have the option if you're 18 to actually apply directly to northwest college of construction that's where we have our camp because as a training provider we support both union and non-union programs we give our students the opportunity to go either way so they uh, because the camp is held at northwest college the students can apply there directly or they come to constructing hope any silver lining of this time in history? How are you going through right now? What's the reality for you and for your organization? And is there any good news in what's happening right now? Well, um, and all bad news is fine. I don't mean to push you only to good news. Be as honest as, you, as you're in a position to be. Yeah. Well, right now it is kind of bad news for us because as a training program, we offer four classes a year and we do a summer program. With COVID, uh, this basically stopped our program because of the distancing and we now have to move to an online platform. So with all of our students being 100% low income, there's a huge digital divide here. So there's a lot of work that we have to do to get computers in the hands of our students. This training cannot be done on your phone. Um, actually to get a platform to provide the training, we're looking at several options for that and those things do have costs. Half of our program is hands-on training. So that's what makes this program successful. Yeah, how are you doing the hands-on training? How do you teach somebody to, in a pre-apprenticeship program to be a pipe, fit, pipe fitter or a plumber if they can't put their hands on a pipe or some plumbing? Right. Well, in good times, we have relationships with those trades, and the way we introduce our, our students is through site visits. We go to a site visit at 290, Plumbers 290, or at Northwest College of Construction or the Carpenters. When we go for a visit, we get an introduction there, and we also get a hands-on training. So the industry is, is really involved in, in our training and provides those hands-on. In our classroom, we're teaching basic carpentry so that they get an introduction to tools. So we're teaching flooring, roofing, and framing. They're building those things in our classroom. And then we do projects in the community, like we built tiny homes at Dignity Village and Aguape Village for the homeless. So that's pretty much how our hands-on training happens. And so what do you do now? If it's all online... Uh, does that mean there's no hands-on? Do they do hands-on stuff at home? How do you manage? Well, right now we don't have any classes going on. We're yeah. stalled. So we're on hold. And part of the reason why we are doing leveling the playing field and fundraising. We're going to have to move and get larger spaces. We're going to have to either decrease the number of students that we're um, serving. 
Right now we do classes of 25. And in our current space with social distancing, that class could probably cut down to five. So that's going to be a huge impact on our finances because our funding comes from contracting and grants based on those 25 seats in the classroom. So you get like a per capita funding mechanism, and if you can't fit as many people in a building because of social distancing, then there's a question of, well, how do you pay your staff? Right. Right. So those are the issues that we're facing. Why do you do this? I do this because, you know, Jefferson, um, I felt it was, I'm going to say it was 2005. My mom passed away. And when she passed away, I... um, basically had a nervous breakdown and I start praying for purpose. In my previous life, I was the customer service manager at Portland Airport and I've worked at uh, Atlanta Airport. So a friend of mine invited me to a church and I never knew the plight of someone coming from incarceration. I thought all they did was got out of jail and just go get a job and start your life over. And I could not believe the amount of barriers that was in front of people who were formerly incarcerated. You basically pay for that the rest of that sentence that you did even though your time is over you pay for it the rest of your life most recently we banned the box that gave some people a little bit of reprieve but you know what just because the box is banned doesn't mean that these people are still getting the opportunity to go to work and explain ban the box that's that's when on the front page of a job application you have to check the box you've ever been convicted of a crime or a felony yep and i used to be that person that we had to have that piled yes no and maybe you check the box you're always no and that was and that was changed by the legislature what a few years back? Yeah, I think it was about two or three years back. So that's been changed, but yeah, keep going with the barriers that are in the way of somebody who's formerly incarcerated trying to live some semblance of a life. Well, you know, they if I didn't realize when they have classes that they have to take, they have to pay for those things. When you have an ankle bracelet, you have to pay for that. When you're incarcerated, if you have kids, guess what? Child support continues to build while you're making two cents a day or nothing at all. Um, so you come out with so much debt and, you know, if you had credit cards, nobody's taking care of your bills and things. So everything comes, when you come out, everything is upside down. And at some point you couldn't even get food stamps. But so those are some of the things that change. So going fast forward, it's important for me to do this kind of work to help people truly reenter society. We don't have a way for people to reenter once they commit a crime. And one of the big problems, of course, is even just having something where they can earn a living. Why the trades? Why? I mean, there could be any number of things, and maybe that's just the one you're interested in. Well, but going no, from I, the airport background, why did you, you decide to go in the direction of trying to help people in the building trades? Well, again, because when I came to this church and I saw the need of the people, um, the trades have the average person making $100 working construction. They don't work in an office. When you think about the project managers and, and the level of education, construction is the one area where they're paying you to educate you. It's an apprenticeship. And anytime anybody can get an apprenticeship, that, that's a great place to be. I, I'm a college graduate. I don't knock it. But that student loan payment that I'm still making at my age is ridiculous. So that system needs to change. Um, so for these guys, if they, it's the only way that they can actually have a real life and make a decent wage. The average person coming out of incarceration is making like $12 an hour in a dead-end job that's probably going to give you a a 50 cents or a 20 cents uh, increase at the end of the year. When you go into construction, the paid apprenticeship, their increase is like $2 an hour. That could happen within your first year. 
So if you started a job at $18 an hour, within your first year, you could be at 20 years before you have your, your first year anniversary because it's based on the amount of hours that you're working and your education that you're getting while you're on that job, going to school at night. So, so with the trades, what you do is you help people get into that apprenticeship. So you aren't the apprenticeship itself. You try to get what folks ready to be apprentices? Right. We are a pre-apprenticeship. And as a pre, we're giving them all of the certifications and everything that they need to move into that trade. But going through any pre-apprenticeship training program, it gives you a leg up. Because when you're competing against the average person going in, they don't have the certifications that you have. You, we have direct entry with the trades because the trades already know and have been a part of our building our curriculum. So I have job developers that actually move the people from our 10-week training where we're looking at um, math skills, all of the things that's necessary for that particular trade, and making sure that they have the certifications. At the end of the 10 weeks, they're going through a mock interview with the person of that JATC coordinator, Joint Apprenticeship Training Coordinator, for the trade that they're going into. They're coached and, and mentored. And once they complete the program, we don't let you go. We ask you for a three- to four-year commitment. We ask you for a lifetime commitment. And the commitment is because the culture of the trade is to help you be successful. Some trades can journey in two years, which means that you're an expert and you're at the top pay of that trade. Others can take five to seven years. So with that, you know, there's a lot of ebbs and flows of learning the culture of, I'm going to give you an example. One of my guys said that he wanted to not stay in the trades because he had been fired three times. And I had to explain that you are not fired three times. In your first year as an apprentice, you're working for the union or your uh, non-union. So you may go to several jobs so that you can learn different things. And then by your third year, you're picked up with a company that keeps you because you've completed your education to the point that you're valuable to that company. But when you first start out, you're working in a lot of different jobs so that you can learn a lot of different things. Pat Daniels, Constructing Hope. The website where the fundraiser is happening is constructinghope.org. Leveling the Playing Field is the name of that fundraiser. As I go to the website, what I see is you've now raised, oh, I checked before, it was 33 grand. It's keep going, it's now it's a 30, oh, now it's a 39. So congratulations, you're well on your way. You have a $100,000 goal. You're about 40% of the way there. Again, the website is constructinghope.org. Thanks to Dr. Henson and Pat Daines for joining The Local, and thanks for your work, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Pretty please, pretty please, pretty please, and the five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.